This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Firminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. Peter DeLuise. That's it. That's the intro. That's perfect. Okay, it's not the intro, but it absolutely could be. It should be. If you have even the most cursory knowledge of the larger YVR screen scene, that name, Peter DeLuise, evokes something. Maybe it evokes the McQuaid brothers, or more specifically, Officer Doug Penhall, the character he played on 21 Jump Street, the Stephen Canal series that changed the game and established Vancouver as a go-to destination for American productions. Maybe your thoughts bring you to the science fiction sphere and to roles like that of the genetically engineered life form Dagwood on Sequest DSV. Maybe you're a total Stargate stan, and when you think of Peter, you think about him as a director, writer, producer, and creative consultant all over the Stargate verse. Or maybe your tastes run a little more to family dramas and mysteries, and Peter has directed your favorite episode of When Calls the Heart, Chesapeake Shores, or Garage Sale Mysteries. Or maybe it's the last name. DeLuise, first made famous by his funny father, the late great actor and comedian Dom DeLuise, and carried on by Peter and his brothers. Now, Peter is more than his name. He's one of the most beloved and well-respected directors and actors in the city, with good reason. And we would not be able to call ourselves the YVR Screen Scene Podcast without trying to get this stalwart of the scene into our studio. That's the intro. Peter DeLuise. That was a good one. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Studio. I don't know if that was the right use of the word stalwart. So. Yeah, no, as I was saying it, I'm like, I don't know. I wanted to like talk about, like you're a monolith? No, stalwart, if you use stalwart, if you just put a little cream on it, it'll clear right up. No, maybe that was the right use of it then, Peter DeLuise. Gonna mock my intro. No, it's about how you're like, you're important. You're a presence. Thank you're, you're, yes, if I, I see you in a, I at an event, that, but thank you, you absolutely for can. That. Hey, you absolutely, you absolutely can. We've had many a lovely dinner together, seen you at many events. You're like a beacon of light there. I'm always drawn to you to. I'm, I'm, I'm a beacon. You're a beacon. I'm a beacon. I've, I've Look, I'm trying to, to give you compliments and you're just. Beacon. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. That's very kind. You're too kind. Thank you for inviting me. And, and I, let me, uh, since you've gone out of your way to do all, all of that lovely research about me and my career, let me start this uh, interview by saying that I want to thank you Aww. for having the moxie to do this because I think this is an incredibly important thing that you're doing for the community, uh, the Vancouver acting community. And I don't know why there wasn't something like this before this, but you figured out and you realized that we need to share our common experiences yeah. in this local area. And you are celebrating all of us 
And so I want to thank you for that. Well, thank this you. This is really important stuff that you're doing here. It's a very, uh, it's very generous of you to say that. But it's you know, it's very much people like you and the conversations that we've had over the years that made me want to do this. I want to bring people into these conversations because yes, they're about the industry and they're about acting, but they're they're incredible human stories. You know, I mean, we were talking about. This might be a lofty goal for myself, but you know, we we're talking about this American life, you know, yeah. bef- before the, the I, I hit record on the, the gold standard, and all podcasts, you know, and it's but it, and what do they do there? It's just bringing people into a story, you know, yeah, well, people sharing their story, the humanity and, of the people involved. Yeah. yeah, so we're here to dive into your humanity today, and I think that's it for my podcast voice. So we're just going to get back to that. So I want to I want to go begin with some time travel, mm-hmm. and I want to go back in time. I'm assuming we're going to go to Pacific Palisades? Is you really did your research. That's good. You know what's so funny, though? Can I just say, uh, it's not even a research. I mean, you're you as somebody who consumes entertainment, you are a presence. I mean, I watched Sequest back in the back in the day. I can't believe that, you know, and that it was the same guy who was Officer Doug was also Dagwood. And, mm. and just thinking about what you must have gone through even for preparation of body for for the cosmetics that you needed to do for that kind of role so less research and more like what do I know what do I know about about Peter DeLuise so you've like been in my in my brain so you knew that without having to look it up yeah I have sequest uh, action figures as well well then you'll know that the dag would never a- actually became an uh, uh, action figure. Yes, I'm aware of that. <laughs> Darn it. I could have been an action figure. <laughs> we had to find another one and then just like, you know, draw all over it and mm-hmm. remove the hair with some nail polish remover. I mean, there's a plan. People, there are YouTube videos about that, I'm sure. But let's stay on, let's stay on target here, okay? All right. Pacific Palisades. I want to know, I want to hear about your childhood. I want you to paint a picture of what it was like to be, you know, seven, eight years old in your house. Sure, sure. So I'm, I'm guessing you're saying Pacific Palisades because that's where I, most of my uh, formative years where I grew up uh, was. I was actually uh, born in um, uh, New York, mm. New York City, and my parents had a little, uh, a little um, apartment in Hell's Kitchen on 55th, and one of my first uh, things where they where they put me was in a drawer, oh, as a uh, because they didn't have a, enough space. And you're uh, you're the oldest. I'm the eldest of th- the three brothers. Uh, and they Peter put you in a drawer. Well, uh, they keep the drawer open, but they put blankets. So when you're a tiny child, that was an acceptable way of, yeah. of dealing with it. Thank you for clarifying that they as, did leave the drawer as a, open <laughs> as, a, as a bassinet. But uh, very early on, my dad had been recruited uh, by a producer named Greg Garrison, who was. Uh, doing a show called the Dean Martin Show at the time, and mm. he used to go to New York City, and and he'd try to recruit um, some unknown talent um, from the musical theater scene, and and uh, he saw my dad, and asked my dad to do some sketches with Dean Martin all the way in Los Angeles. And my dad ended up having a very successful run with that, so much so that they decided that he needed to move, or we needed to move his his little fledgling family to Los Angeles. And that's how we came to be all of us uh, growing up in in, uh, Pacific Palisades. Okay. And we lived in a, we still own that house, but we lived in the house uh, in Pacific Palisades um, for for the whole time we were uh, coming up 
through school. Um, went to uh, Rustic Canyon and uh, Paul Revere Junior High School and Palisades High School. I played football and and uh, played all all the different sports. And during that time, my my parent, both of my parents were active in in acting. And I didn't know that other parents didn't act. I just thought that that okay. was just naturally what everybody did when I was uh, not quite old enough to realize the difference. So it just seemed like a natural thing that, that everybody just did. Were you friends with a lot of um, of children who were who were the, like kids who were the children of other actors? Yes, well, yeah. because- Because uh, you're into like a bubble. Is it, is it like, yeah. yeah, so there was many, many uh, children um, of, of uh, other uh, people in, in, in the entertainment industry. Um, so just as an aside, uh, apropos of nothing, Jerry Paris, a, a very uh, prolific uh, director who used to direct uh, a lot of Happy Days, was our uh, football coach. Okay. And his his son Andy uh, Paris was uh, well, I was on the same football team, and he coached us, and he invited the whole um, team to come watch a very special uh, filming of of a particular episode of Happy Days, in which a very young Robin Williams. Who play? Who's playing Mork? Mm. Uh, was guesting on the show, and then that that he blew up, obviously, and got his own series. But I was in the studio audience because of the the crossover yeah. between all the industry uh, people, and just by sheer chance, because I was not because uh, Jerry Paris knew my dad. It was because I knew Jerry Paris's son, and we were playing football together, and that. So I just happened to be in the audience when that was happening, and I got to meet Henry Winkler. As, as, he was, yeah, as he was preparing uh, to, uh, ahead of time, and then and I was in. I watched as they, you know, uh, before the, the whole rest of the world got to see Rob Williams playing the the his his amazing performances, Mark, and then ultimately, which became this powerhouse that we all went, oh my god holy cow yeah so at that point or like I guess at what point did you articulate I want to go into I mean especially go well, into showbiz because right. if you're so growing I, up in I that world I never knew that that, w- that you couldn't not do that I yeah. just thought that that was what you did did and you know there were jobs other than showbiz jobs were you like no and when I found out <laughs> I was shocked that somebody would want to uh, uh, collect other people's garbage yeah. or 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 clean other people's bathrooms. I thought, yeah. I, why would somebody choose to do that if they could be an actor? Right. So I, didn't, I didn't know that that was even an option. So when I did find that out, I mean, my dad had to clarify, it's not It's not that they want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that, that's what That's what the, they have to do it because they gotta, they got to pay the rent. Yeah. So, um, yeah, very early on, I uh, my parents uh, put, put all of us kids in uh, shows uh, so there was a, a huge amount of nepotism going on there where we would be put in as extras in a lot of the commercials and a lot of the uh, movies that my parents are in. You could see us in the background or we'd come to visit uh, back in the days when, when craft service was basically, there were only three things at craft service, row after row after row of boxes of donuts, coffee, and soda pop. And there was nothing else, no other thing offered. And so visiting your parents on set was awesome because you got to eat <laughs> all the donuts you 
uh, that were available. Yeah, I could say for a kid that would be great. But as you were saying that, like my my stomach, like just started. I just started getting a sour stomach, like no, just thinking I, about no donuts and pop. But yes, eight nine year old me would have been all up in that. Of course. Yeah. And then you, if you go for the uh, the jelly filled donuts, those have the most sugar. Oh yeah. Right? And then and the Teamsters <laughs> would invariably go, "Who's that kid eating all those donuts?" And I, that's that's Tom's kid. Leave him alone. <laughs> But so you're all, you're all on set and you're all you're around that machinery like we're of of creating the yeah. entertainment magic. Uh, not so, everybody though who who has exposure to that necessarily has the gift or the or the skills to, or to the desire. Yes, that, but yeah. you all had that then. Well, um, my. A lot of people have a very romantic notion of what it is to make a to make a movie or, or to make a TV show, and, and then they show up on a on a movie set and they go, "Oh, there's a lot of repetition here. This is a seriously long hours." Yeah, right? and so uh, people get into the entertainment industry for for a lot of the wrong reasons, or they will show up not having no how a movie is made, and they'll go, "Oh, this is this is this is boring." Yeah. After the first five minutes, it's the same thing over and over. So as a kid, I didn't um, I didn't have that uh, feeling, although the hours were quite long. Yeah. And for for a child, you know, uh, five minutes can seem like an hour, and an hour can, it can seem yeah. like an entire day. But what I realized was that my dad was having a lot of fun. He mm. was very stimulated, and I saw that. So so the example that bo- and my mom was also uh, having a lot of fun, and I thought I. I could do this. I could have this kind of fun, and in the same way that he, um, it, uh, and a parent exposes his philosophy to to his children, my dad was like, "It's got to be about the fun. It's got to be about the work. It's got to be about the creativity." So, creating a safe place where you can have fun, and anybody who's seen the uh, the bloopers with uh, Burt Reynolds at the <laughs> end of all those wonderful uh, movies uh, with my dad, that they 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 can see that that they are having fun, right? Yeah. And so uh, in my own work, uh, what I tried to do is keep it light, keep yeah. it fun. Keep, keep Remember that there have been many, many, many p- people that have come before me who thought they were curing cancer and we're not curing cancer. Yeah. We're, we're trying to entertain. And, you know, as a, as a, as a potential bonus, maybe uh, lifting the social awareness a little bit, you know, in- incrementally, but yeah. but if it's not fun, I don't I don't know, uh, you know, maybe you should go do something else, right? If if, uh, if if you're not having fun in the entertaining people. Yeah. What kind of advice did your parents give you when you articulated that you were going to make this your life and that you were just going to go and give her and uh, and and chase this acting thing? Uh. Well, they. They uh, they wished me luck uh, because there's only so much you can do in terms of nepotism. There's only so much you can do in terms of nepotism to say, like here's here's you get your toe in the door, but if you're not any good, you can't you can't stay in it. Yeah. And uh, doing the auditions and putting in the time. Uh, ever since I was of age, I started. I had a you know I was able to get an agent in. Um, right around 16 or so, I, I had worked, I had gotten my, uh, I have a, a very silly story about when I, my, my dad put me in a movie called Hot Stuff in which I played 
his son, mm-hmm. which was a big stretch for me. <laughs> and it, I had to um, had to join the the union, yeah. the actors union. Uh, and, and my dad said it's cost three hundred dollars, and we're going to join the union. So part of your salary goes towards that, and and then then you'll be in the union. You'll be an actor for the rest of your life, and you'll have this this membership. And I said, oh, three hundred bucks. That sounds like a lot of money. Uh, you know that that buys a lot of GI Joes. I don't want to do that he yeah goes, no you have to it's a rule <laughs> you just have to do that right? gi joe's are union yeah, man like yeah. i get it i i i empathize with young peter yeah so i was only 13 at that point and that sounded and i was doing so that was the first experience and then every experience after that was uh, auditioning and and getting myself you know paying my, my parents gave me a a foundational respect for for money like i mm. i did work for minimum a wage uh, i i uh, i worked at uh, an ice cream uh, a parlor I, I i made pizza made and delivered pizzas i uh, delivered flowers really to supplement my income until i was able to and and it was weird because my my dad would uh, well, before i could even drive my dad would pick me up from the ice cream parlor and I would invariably get a little bit of ice cream on my forearm from digging in these five-gallon drums of, you know, scooping out the scoops. And I get a little bit of, and and he picked me up in his very expensive Mercedes while I was on this minimum wage job. And then when I would come in, he'd lick, he'd lick the <laughs> ice cream off of my forearm as a joke. He'd say, "Oh, you got a little stain there." But the but the the day the uh, the dichotomy of him being in the super expensive car, but me working in this minimum wage job was. You know, I realized in retrospect that that was that was really important yeah. that, I, that I do that, and then so while I was supplementing my income and, and and auditioning for for these gigs, some of my first jobs are are some classical old things that people oh you were on that show so so things like I was in the last actual episode of Different Strokes with Gary <gasps> Coleman, yeah if you look that up that's kind of weird that was yeah. one of my first gigs without my my parents. Uh, I was in Facts of Life. Wow. Yeah. And this, I think that was the sixth season. And then I, I did um, uh, something called Haunting Hour, which is a, a well-loved uh, Halloween uh, special that, come, that they play every every year. And I went over to Spain for four months in, in, a, in a sci-fi thriller called Solar Babies. So I was having these wonderful experiences as a very young person yeah. outside of the supervision of my, my parents. And I was thrilled. Yeah. And I was using this onset, have fun, uh, staying present philosophy, which is to answer your question, what they were saying was is to stay present, do the work, right? And try not to be a pain in the ass and realize how fortunate you are yeah which I, I invariably if I get if I if, if I start to get complacent I remember how awesome this job is really and that it, you, you can just choose to have fun if yeah. you want to you don't have to decide that it's um that it's like every every situation is different of course and the people that you work with are different and there are invariably there are squeaky wheels that need lubricating but if you can't have fun at the end of the day, you should be doing something different. Yeah. Now, w- when you started out then and you're 
traveling. I mean, Spain must have been super fun, oh, yeah. you know, especially yeah. t- towards the beginning of your career. But like, what kind of career did you want? Was it about chasing fun, or did you have an idea of the kind of roles that you wanted to to take on as you move forward? Right. So I think that my particular attitude was, I, I I would like to think it was unique, but I know I know now in retrospect that it was that I had the same altruistic, idealistic idea about my career, and I didn't want to be stereotyped, and I wanted to 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 do really solid work and to to really make my mark. Yeah. And so I took myself way too seriously. I can't imagine that. I mean, I well, can't because we were I, all and, young, and just, right? I've but. just finished telling you how I how I was. I, I thought I would just have fun. Yeah. But because I was young, and young people say they have they're cursed with not knowing better, right? So young mm. people are cursed with thinking they're immortal because they have been hurt, right? Yeah. I mean, emotionally and, and and physically, right? Not not just physically. So when when a young person jumps off a, a thing that they shouldn't jump off of, it's because. Every time they've done that before, it's been it's been fine, right yeah. up until it's not been fine, right? Right. And so when you land too hard and you twist your ankle, you go, oh, that's a that's a life lesson. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't jump. Maybe I should be more careful when I jump off of that thing. I'm talking literally and figuratively. Yeah. Because I could get hurt, right? Or maybe I shouldn't make that joke at somebody else's expense because that could hurt them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there are a whole bunch of things that you do that you don't realize as, as a young person that in retrospect you go, oh, because young people say things like, I never and I always. Oh, yeah. And when you're older, you go, yeah, that's not, you can't say that anymore because there is no never and always. Yeah. And so uh, I think I was full of, full of it when I was a little kid. And uh, over time, just like most 20-somethings, they think they know everything. So they're just just dangerous enough. They have enough knowledge to be dangerous, and by that I mean, you know, they have a just enough technical knowledge to try to mm-hmm. try to impress <laughs> you with their what how they know that about making films, and then you and you go, yeah, 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 I get it. I got it. you have this much knowledge about it. Like how many times do you think I've done? You know, now in retrospect, now that I'm 53 years old, I've done this so many times. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought too when I was your age. Yeah. But if you say that to somebody, it's a, it's not you're not endearing yourself to them, right? Yeah, yeah. man. And I, I also though remember being you know in my early twenties and the kind of courage required to go out there and have that kind of that kind of confidence, you mm-hmm. know. And yeah, I, I I usually end the interviews with this, uh, but but I, it seems like a good place to kind of to bring it up. But if you could go back in time yeah. and talk to yourself when you are in your early 20s and give yourself some advice, like what would you say? Or would you say anything at all? Because that's an option too. Yeah, those are always, those are always uh, interesting, uh, the interesting premise because you, know, like you want to be able to sum it up. Like you don't know if there's a time limit. Can I just hang out with my younger self and just yeah. go, don't do that? <laughs> I think I'd like to do yeah, that. Yeah, you have a 24-hour download. No, it's probably just a minute, you know, just the way that this tech, the time travel technology works. You sure. get you get a minute. Well, I think I would have explained to my younger self that if if I wanted to direct that I should put myself in my own uh, I I was going to, and I, I I don't know if this was something you were going to ask me later, but I miss performing very much. I was going to ask that, and I <laughs> I um, I realized too late that um, 
uh, b based on uh, in terms of the, the financial model up here and in terms of the actor salaries that I, I can't afford to, to, to be an actor. Yeah. And that uh, the people who can make a living at it locally up here are, uh, they're stuck in a particular um, income bracket. Yeah. I'm not talking about the outliers who are in a bunch of uh, long running uh, series. I'm talking about your, your journeyman, your, your, your the blue collar slugging it out day after yep. day. Um, actors who who can afford a particular um, you know amount of rent, and or maybe uh, a, you know a modest uh, mortgage. But Vancouver is a very expensive place to live, yep. and so it's it's very difficult for actors to make a uh, a solid living and have you know because I think there's an illusion that that people who are in show, show business have have. Uh, a lot of money yeah. and live in mansions, and and just the opposite is true. Is that most most actors are live in a, a very modest uh, one or two bedroom home? Yeah, or, or they sacrifice yeah. in order to pursue this work. Yeah, they yeah. do, and they have to be they have to supplement their income with something, or they have to be married to a spouse who is making a solid. Um, all the time, money. Yeah, uh, you know, a, a solid income that is on the side. And so what I learned, uh, and getting back to the original point, which is if, if, if I wanted to direct, because I, I thought directing was awesome because it was very stimulating. You had a, a much bigger say in how the story was being told. Uh, you were there from the very beginning to the very end. I was like, that, this seemed like a natural progression. Yeah. Uh, up up, a, up a, a success ladder. But when you get to that point, and you commit to a family and a mortgage and everything, you can't then go back to just acting because yeah. the acting doesn't uh, doesn't pay the rent, doesn't pay the mortgage, and so you, now you have to stop performing because you're on a, on a director salary, yeah, right, and and you can't forego those jobs to do these other jobs. So the only way to 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 end up performing is to put yourself in something or to do something in a very time specific window where it's a, not a, a, a long obligation and I never knew that yeah. I didn't know I was giving up acting when I decided to be a director and uh, so I, I think I would have told my younger self that be careful yeah, yeah. hold and hold on to it while you while you can and yeah, yeah. Or, or or get involved in a project where w I don't know if there's another question you would have asked me is what what would my dream project be would be yeah seriously did you read all of my questions well I, this is what I would ask myself if I was on the other <laughs> side of the table you want me to leave the room Peter is, you can interview yourself yeah <laughs> uh, the, the, to to develop a, a retroscripting uh, type thing uh, that like like uh, you know like Spinal Tap or or, or mm. waiting waiting for Guffman yeah. or, or or Best in Show like that kind of those retroscripting type things yeah. where you can actually be in it and also uh, uh, direct it yeah yeah so that that seems like the the best of both worlds oh yeah. So we're putting that out into the universe right now? Heck yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to go back then and, and continue talking. So you've gone back into the future and now you're, yeah. you're I guess, early 20s at this point. Right. Um, we're going to talk just, about just Jump about Street. Just about to get uh, 21 Jump Street. Yeah. yeah. So had you had you been up here before? I, I had never been up here. The, okay. The Bob and Doug McKenzie had just made their mark on North oh, yeah. America. <laughs> and so all I knew about Canada, which is what most Americans knew about Canada, was there is this cool show called Second City. Mm -hmm. And there's Bob and Doug McKenzie. Oh, yeah. And and the, that song, uh, Take Off. Take Off to the Great <laughs> Night North. And, it, and it, we, that's all we knew. Yeah. And some of That's us, enough. I mean, that's all you need to know. Well, we thought, 
we thought when I say we, I'm I'm a Canadian citizen now. So yeah, I, you are. I, so when when I say we, incorrectly now, I, Americans thought at the time that uh, everyone in Canada wore toques and talked out of the side of their mouth mm-hmm. and, and drank Moosehead beer, and that they said a at the end of every sentence and that there were nine foot snowbanks on the side of every road all yeah. across all of Canada. That's what we thought. We did not know, that's what I thought of it. Yeah. And so I was very pleasantly surprised when I came up here and there were no snowbanks and not everybody wore a toque and not everybody spoke out of the side of the mouth. And there's just, you know, there's a, there's a handful of very obvious words that are pronounced Canadian that, yeah. that that actors have to look out for if they're doing a... a what are those words? Because I, I'll admit, I never... I don't think I've said a boot in yeah. my life other than yeah. when I've been like, get pick up that boot over there or yeah. something. And that's not even the appropriate usage. Like, So what what you as the American, what are the words that we Canadians so the, actually the, do the say? The most obvious one is sorry. 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 S-O-R-R-Y is... You would think would be pronounced sorry. Not sorry. S-sar. I'm sorry. Yeah, like a sorry, <gasps> like a like a East Indian person. Sorry. Sorry, right? well. yeah. So, um, I've been on shows many, many times where I've been directing a Canadian actor who doesn't quite uh, get the difference. And what happens is the, the the reason why there's a problem with that is that if an American audience is watching what they think is an American show happening in an American town with an American character, and somebody says sorry. They immediately get pulled out. The the suspension of disbelief is broken, and yeah. they get pulled out of it. And they go, oh, "That guy's a, that person is a Canadian person. Yeah, well, that is a Canadian way of saying uh, the word sorry." And so I say, "Hey, you know that you said sorry. You gotta you gotta say sorry. So so let's do another sorry, take." Sorry, I'm sorry. So on so on take one, it'll be sorry, and then I have a little talk with them. You gotta say sorry. Say take take two, unless they're really uh, understand the difference, they'll say. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, so on take three, it'll end up being, I apologize. We'll just, we'll just switch it to that because I don't want to have to deal with yeah, it. Yeah, it's a lot of work so otherwise. Some of, the, some of the other words are process, process, pasta, pasta, drama, uh, drama, drama. Uh-huh. Um, These are all important words. They are. Yeah. Tomorrow, tomorrow, right? Uh, even uh, things like... The sun will come out tomorrow. Capillaries. <laughs> Capillaries is a medical term. It's mm-hmm. the little tiny uh, blood vessels in your in your at the ends of your uh, veins, and uh, and it's pronounced capillaries in the United States. And and <gasps> when I say that to uh, Canadians, they go, "What? No!" I go, "Yeah, it's capillaries, not capillaries." Decal, decal, Z, Z, even brand names like Celica. Yeah. And when you watch a Celica commercial up here in in Canada, they just they changed the pronunciation to Salika. Yeah. And I thought, why are they perpetuating two different pronunciations? I guess maybe it sells better as yeah. a Salika up here in uh, Salika in the United States. Yeah. So back when you were doing Jump Street then, were these conversations that they were... Because, I mean, you know, what I love about Jump Street is it, it, eh, it was one of the very first productions up here, the American productions to, yeah, you know, yeah. and so it was making a lot of the... And actually... The name of our company, Fish Flight, is from uh, that is yeah. from that time because the Fish Flight was they, the they, was the flight. They put the film on, the, on, the, the on, the film on it, flight, and it was yeah. also the the flight that had all this the the fish the freshly caught fish. Yeah, I so lo- I love that very 
obscure reference that you yeah paul learned it in in film school and he was like like 20 years ago he's like that's if i ever have a company that's what we're gonna call it so that's what we've called it but you know so you you come up here as a production and you're making the rules like now american productions come in and they've said everything like there are protocols now like so back then like were people saying sorry and yes they were were, yes and 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 because i was 20 and full of it i i would tease Instead of being helpful, I would tease them. You don't even know. It's, it's, it's sorry and not sorry. And I mean, I'm in your country. Yeah. At the time, and I was like, "You're it, well, this is only possible because of the the financial model that's been set up." Thank you for for hosting us. Yeah. Right? And uh, so then, you know, in retrospect, I would have told my younger self, "Be kind." Yeah. Don't. don't. You got to forgive twenty year old Peter, though. You know, like twenty year old Peter's a kid still. You know, yeah. he didn't really know. Well, what I do now is I do uh, talk to uh, young American actors, and I say, "Don't tease them. We're in their country." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, just you know, they they're sick of it. Yeah. Don't taunt them. Just try to try. Let's all just try to get along because I think Americans and I, when I grew up, I had no idea um, how self-interested we we are when I was an American only, and how we think the world revolves around the United States, and there's a whole other world out there that that doesn't involve Donald Trump. Yeah, I can't seem to find it on the news. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I've. I mean, I currently have lots of filters right now on my Twitter feed so that mm-hmm. his name and all very various variations don't show up because I mentally. Uh, it's exhausting. I can't handle it. We're all exhausted. Um, so Joe Street though keeps coming up. For a lot of people who come into that chair talk about how it was like their first role. Like Johanna Newmarch said that was her yeah. very first role. Yeah, she was awesome. Yeah, but like, what about for she you met, then? She met Johnny in the little halfway tunnel between the two uh, detention centers. Yeah. Um, and then, she, do, you, do you remember what she said? Because I remember what she said. Cause she told me <laughs> that I watched it on YouTube. Uh, you mean in the movie? Yeah. She she was. I think she was under the impression. Uh, her character was under the impression that they were. She was going to hook up with Johnny. That's right. And he just wanted to hold her, or or I don't remember now. She said, "Let's get it on." Oh, let's get it. On. <laughs> okay, and then he he didn't do that because he knew that he was. A policeman and he was there yes. undercover and, uh, he, yes. and he felt sorry for her i think at the time how, the, the situation how it was that, a beautiful scene it, i mean it was it's a joy so i in, in i have the, of the fact that they said let's get it on yeah no i love it i love it i love that that's Inspired. part of her origin story and it's part of a lot of actors origin stories mm-hmm. in this in the city and like i i got all the seasons on the big dvd thing and i was watching stuff oh yeah i got that do you even have that because I even have that. I, I do not have <laughs> the DVD of the 21 Jumps. I, I lived it. I was there. You lived it. Yeah. Um, although they won't play on my Blu-ray DVD player now. So uh, I so in order to kind of go back in time, I had to watch it on, on YouTube. But I was thinking about, you know, because I know you now, you know, and and knowing that you know who you are now is different than who you are then but you know and then you 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 change though i mean especially the 20s there's such a a Mm -hmm. formative exciting tumultuous time like how did that time working on on jump street being in vancouver you know being at the front at the front of a series like that like how did it change you as as an actor and as somebody in this business uh, so because i was uh 
20 something and because I had I was fresh out of high school and I never ended up going to university oh by the way that's another difference Americans say college yeah to mean anything after school so what college do you go to I go to the University of Southern California yeah. is a, something you would hear in the United States yeah. whereas here in Canada you say what university do you go to yeah college is a tech school right yeah up here yeah so it's totally used the words differently yeah up here. Um, yeah, so I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to um, I didn't go to um, university or, or college, and I I went straight from high school to Twenty One Jump Street, and I yeah. started living up here. You went to the University of Twenty One Jump Street, yeah. unsupervised. <laughs> uh, um, so you weren't in a frat; you were on Jump Street. Yeah, and I, so I, you know, calling in, uh, you know, touching base with my parents on the phone was is different from being interacting with them on a daily basis. And so I, I, I began to miss them. But what I didn't, and this is another thing I would have told my younger self, is sleep. Mm. Don't go out and party every night. Yeah. Go out and sleep because the long, long hours. This is one of the things that happens was the Americans came up here and said, we're going to teach you Canadians how to shoot a show. Yeah. Very presumptuous. And in retrospect, I realized how wasteful it was. It was the 80s, and there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of waste. Yeah. They would take something like 65-page scripts, and they would do them over seven or eight days up here, which is incredibly wasteful. I mean, 15 minutes of, of an entire show would end up on the editing room floor, which mm. doesn't make sense anymore because there's no film on the floor anymore. No floor, but, yeah. But they would get, get cut out, which is... You know, that's like two whole days of production if you end up doing six or seven pages a day. Yeah. Uh, um, so these Americans will come up with, we're going to do not 12-hour days, which is standard now. We're going to do 13 and 14-hour days and sometimes 15 and 16-hour days to get our days because we have 65-page scripts with action. And, 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 it, and it was a, a very a much slower uh, process now. The, 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 the uh, uh, typical episode now is, is closer to 50 pages yeah um, and the amount of waste in the amount of self-righteous sort of we're going to teach you Canadians how to do this right uh, it, it, blew, it blows my mind even to this day thinking back you know this is exactly not how to if you're if you're trying to make it um, the best it can be yeah one of the I would say one of the, one of the philosophies is Make it long on purpose and then cut it down so that it, it really sings and it becomes streamlined. Well, well, the problem with that is if you don't know what's going to end up being the fi in the final cut, you could, you could, you could lose whole scenes that are, that are intricate to the and have to do voiceover to try, to try to have it make sense. Yeah. And um, the other thing that's wrong with that philosophy is, is in having a, a something that's way too long that has to be cut down is – the stuff that you shot that ends up not being in the movie compromises the 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 quality of the stuff that did end up in the final cut right so if you if you spent the whole morning doing a doing something um, a very dramatic scene that isn't going to be in in the movie and then you hurried up and did some some very fast action after lunch yeah and but you compromise the quality of that scene what that scene's going to be in the movie yeah but the first scene is not going to be in the movie because it was too long and boring, or 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 it was, or it it was a slightly redundant, or or one of the lines could just be put in another scene. So, 
all of these things amount to the quality suffering ultimately. Yeah. And, and a lot of uh, network executives don't realize that. They want it to be the longest version so they can cut it down. And they say, well, it gets done anyway. It was like, yes, it gets done. Of course it gets done. Yeah. Everything gets done as best to the best of our ability. But at what cost? At what cost? As to yeah. the quality of the, how many, uh, are there any close-ups here? No, there's no close-ups. You know why? Because we spent all morning doing this other scene that yeah. isn't going to be in the movie. Is yeah. that, do you think about those experiences a lot? Like, I mean, you say oh. you didn't go to film school or you didn't go to university, but you're what you were watching all of that happening. There were lessons that were being learned then. So is it like, is, is, has this f formed you as a, as a director now? Like, did you go to Jump Street University for directing? Yeah, well, yeah. so what you're calling Jump Street University is, so when I direct uh, actors, I invariably think of myself as an actor's director because I know what it's like to be on that side of the camera. Right. And I know uh, some of the pitfalls or, or uh, challenges that are, that are going to, to, that, to anticipate. And so when we go to block a scene, I was, I've anticipated this, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've thought of this, this seems like it, uh, it's not gonna do, uh, this is gonna be uh, difficult, let's try to do it this way. Or th this is, we're gonna break this down so that it, so that it works for you. So I, I, I try to anticipate the needs and I speak, I speak actor, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. I know how I like to be spoken to, right? Yeah. And they're, uh, not all actors are the same. There's not a, a wrong and a right way. The, the actors are as varied as there are colors in the rainbow. There, you have, uh, some actors who like to be given technical notes, mm -hmm. and some actors who um, like to be given um, as ifs, right? So if you say, um, "Can you do this as if your life depended on it?" Yeah. Or can you do this? Uh, can you raise the stakes for me? Right. So you don't have to give them an as if. You don't have to. You don't have to put them in that situation. Or, or, I, or an actor will say to me. Um, I don't want to say. I don't think my actor, my character would say this. You say, well, there's a ton of reasons why people say stuff that they don't actually mean. Mm -hmm. Let's figure out why. Like, why do you think you don't say this line? You know, I'd much rather have an actor say. I don't think my character would say this, but I think they would say this. Like so, no, Napoleon had this. He demanded this of his lieutenants. Is if you're going to bring me a problem, bring me a solution. Mm -hmm. So having an actor yes. say to me, I don't think I would say this, is a dead end. Yeah. Right. So if I say, well, what do you think you do say? And the response is, well, I'm not a writer. I say, well, you're uh, apparently you, you know enough <laughs> to know you wouldn't say this, but yeah. you don't know what you would say. So that doesn't really help. So let's talk about what you would say. So yeah. keeping things uh, in a positive spin is, is helpful. Is there such a thing as an undirectable actor? And if so, have you come across these in oh, the wild? For sure. Yeah. Undirectable and actors, you just stay out of their way. Yeah. And hope you just you go to your happy place and you think. This person's taking themselves too seriously, and they, and they, they're. You know what's? You know what? I actually kind of feel bad for uh, undirectable actors because they are under the impression that they, they, they know it all. Yeah. Right? And of course, everyone knows it all at one point or another. And so, if I come across an undirectable actor, I will acknowledge that, and I'll say, "Do you? Do you want?" some direction here or do you like and then if you know my job is to direct people that is uh, and I have to try to bring them to communication is always the 
the key. And you know, it's unfair labeling somebody as an unpredictable actor. What I will do is I will, I will inform the group and this so-called undirectable actor. So not single them out. Yeah. And yeah. I will say, this is what I think this scene is about. Please help me get that done. Yeah. So everything informs, everything in a movie or a, or a particular episode is about story. Yeah. It has to be about story. Um, and the only the only uh, hurdles or, or, or uh, problems that you come across are when or most of the time, or when um, a series regular has a problem with this particular episode, right? Mm. So this in this story, my character likes Brussels sprouts, but uh, last week I hated Brussels sprouts. I can't say I love Brussels sprouts now. So, so you see, the problem is that the the character is going to be back next week, but the story won't be back next week. Right. So that's the only kind of situation where you go, oh, we have we have to figure out what the deal with the Brussels sprouts is, right? So Brussels sprouts are amazing. I know, right? Say. Especially when it's fried up. Uh, I'm, a, oh. I'm a fan as well. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, the, so that is a situation where a, a series regular m- might actually say, I wouldn't say this. Yeah. Say, well, 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 let's figure out what you would say, okay? But the every other time I find it where, where a, perhaps a guest on, on a show says, I wouldn't say this, you go, actually... Uh, I wrote this episode, and this is the line that I. This is why I invented your character, is yeah. so you could say this particular line. So if you're not getting that, right? So you, I think actors should f- try to figure out first why they would say a line that yeah. they wouldn't say, or at least ask for help. James Garner on the Roxford file, Rockford Files, had this great technique. I'm told because I never met the man, but I heard he was a, a really, really awesome dude. Is if he saw a line that he thought he wouldn't say he wouldn't come he wouldn't come right out and say I wouldn't say this line he would elicit help he would say can you help me with this now, this mm. is putting your ego in check in a big way right yeah. because you're coming from a place where you're saying I, I don't know right and of course you do know but you're pretending you don't yeah can you help me with this you're eliciting help great way to deal with people can you help me understand the meaning of this line because I'm, I'm having trouble having it make sense. Yeah. So now you've elicited help perhaps from your director or a producer who wrote this and they will have to explain it to you. And they, one of two things will happen. Either they'll explain it to you in a way that you had not considered yeah. or they'll realize themselves it makes no sense and change the line yeah. while they're trying to explain wow. it to you. I mean, yeah. that's not even just for for acting and directing. That's great life advice, communicating mm-hmm. to other people in a way where you can actually bring people on board to work with you. Yeah. So an undirectable actor yeah. could learn from James uh, Garner, obviously. Yeah. And uh, so, what, so I will say, this is what I think the scene is about. Can you please help me with this scene? So that goes for anything like a uh, an ad-lib joke yeah. Or a line that we're, if we're going to take a line and, and, and repurpose it or, or change it a little bit, if we don't change the meaning of, this, of the line, then I'm okay with that. You know, some, some writers would, would disagree with me, especially sitcom writers, because where every syllable has to be the exact yeah. thing. But um, if you don't change the intention of the line and, um, and, and, this, and, the, and the purpose of the scene is served, then you're telling the story. Yeah. And, that's good. and if you go to the last scene, this is another thing I tell actors all the time, is if you go to the last scene and you figure out what the, because the theme is invariably wrapped up in the last scene, what, what the writer leaves you with. In parting, this is what I want you to be left with. 
the theme of the thing is in the last scene and, and usually happens in the last few lines, if yeah. not the last line. If you realized the whole point of the movie in the theme at the end of the scene, then you, uh, at the end of the movie rather, then that informs the entire movie right. and every single scene. So if you're smart enough to know that, then you can go to the end and you go, ah, this is the theme of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you... And that and that would inform how all of your ad-libs would come out or what your or what your function in the movie is, right? Like my job as an actor in this uh, fake scenario, hypothetically, is I'm supposed to be a red herring in a murder mystery or I'm supposed to be somebody who is uh, giving... Um, Pushing back on a, on a, uh, the the lead actors so that they're not getting what they want, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, we're going all over the place, and I like it. Well, I'm sorry because this is no, yeah. no, it's good because My like wife says I did that when uh, when I'm kissing her. <laughs> <laughs> She's not gonna like that. No, that's blue humor. That's that low hanging fruit. Yeah, I'm sorry. She didn't want My any God. of that today. Yeah. Um, my wife, Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie DeLuise. I, I, you know, and then I real, I just remembered why I know that you're from Pacific Palisades. Because the article that I wrote about you and Anne-Marie years ago was like, he was a California boy from Pacific Palisades. And then she was she was from Newfoundland, from the extreme, you know, conditions in Newfoundland. And, and yet somehow they found each other. Yeah. And they now they're just dynamic DeLuises. That was the name of the article, the dynamic DeLuises. D.D. That yeah, was a good one. That's you, that's you guys. Uh, but... You know, so, I mean, Jump Street, not sci-fi, you know, uh, but you for many years, for a lot of people are kind of like associated with and enmeshed and intertwined and, um, and dare I say, a monolith <laughs> in the I'm, world of, of sci-fi. I'm a monolith. I yeah. have carried a lot of extra weight in my life. You yeah. like to describe me as a monolith. I did uh, over 65 episodes of uh, the uh, the franchise known as Stargate. Yeah. Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, Stargate Universe. I had a, uh, it was a wonderful, very, very educating uh, time in my life. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, we had talked about uh, Sequest uh, mm. as well. Now, the stuff that you're talking about as, a, as an actor and as a director, are they slightly different or are they vastly different when they when you put them in the sci-fi sphere? Or is it all the is it the same? Is it the same way of directing? Is it the same way of acting? Like how is it? Like what were some things that you that you had to learn to do to, when you got into the sci-fi world? Right. So when you're doing science fiction, you can never forget the humanity of the characters. That's the key to any any show you're you're doing. Is, yeah. is remembering the the, uh, the the weaknesses and the humanities of all the characters. Just because they're in a spaceship doesn't make them any less human. Or right? because they're ge- genetically engineered. Or yes, yeah. yes, you're you're referencing the my Dagwood character. Yes, I am. So that um, when you do sci-fi, what happens is, and is particularly, you know, I, I'm going to mention a, a a classic that uh, that affected me greatly when I was uh, much younger is uh, the Star Trek. Uh, franchise I used to watch and love Star Trek and somebody explained to me very early on that Star Trek is 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 a western yeah. it's like it's a space uh, western uh, yeah. yeah wagons uh, wagons uh, wagons ho right where it's a never-ending journey across the the 
the the farthest the, reaches, the farthest yeah. reaches the of frontiers. the, the, the five-year mission, right? Yeah. And I went, I, I was like, I, at first I was like, oh, that doesn't make sense to me at all. And then I realized, oh, of course. Westerns, post-apocalyptic uh, movies, which I'm, I'm drawn to uh, as well, and sci-fi, a lot of sci-fi, not all sci-fi, but you know, so m- some sci-fi that is Earth-based is based on uh, authoritarian type, uh, uh, you know, uh, not not utopian or or, or dystopian uh, futures where there's too many rules. Mm. But now I'm talking about the other the other kind of uh, a sci-fi where would be uh, a western is a western because there's there's lawlessness. And and people are left to their own devices. Yes. So it's so it's Lord of the Flies for for grownups, yeah. right? Where there's no rules, no supervision. You can do whatever you want. And the same is true uh, in sci-fi when there's when you're out in space and there's no rules. Is it's a western, a post-apocalyptic zombie apocalypse or, or a plague or something. There are no rules. Yeah, people are are whatever their moral center will allow them to be yeah. if there if there's no society to yeah. to put them in a in a template. And so I'm really drawn to that mm. about people and their you know, because that's taking it to the next level. Yeah, or I was a- even thinking about Star Trek. They they have rules and they're new rules and mm. then they cut like the prime directive where yeah. you're not supposed to interfere I like love the prime I love the prime directive but then you have that and then you like, do you go, do you, you know, you see something that, that you should get involved in because of what your moral center is, but mm-hmm. you got this rule that says you can't, and you have that rule for a reason. What do you do? Many a great hour of television <laughs> explores the, that particular rule. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I, I love that and the, um, and the problems that it caused. And then and they would say, well, if you, if you just... You know what's great about the Prime Directive and, and a lot about sci-fi is it talks about things that are happening in real life. Yeah. So if a if an advanced culture or a first world country uh, scientist goes to a, a tribe in the Amazon who's never s- seen modern anything yeah. and has a... a a soccer ball and a journey T-shirt on, and 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 accidentally intro- introduces that that tribe to uh, to a modern any uh, the modernization, and and then and then in a year they're all they all of oh, this tribe all has cell phones and is and is uh, losing their eyesight, staring at the iPads. Yeah. Then then you go, <laughs> what what have we lost culturally from this tribe that could have been what yeah. they would have done? So they they I think they've taken that. The, the prime director took that to its ultimate conclusion and say this is an example of that. So in the same way that the Crucible uh, talks about McCarthyism, and, and the yeah. Crucible is not even sci-fi; it's just a no. different thing, yeah. right? It's, it's it's a historical reference to something that was happening in, in the, at at the time. Right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, these, we could talk about this stuff. And Star Trek talked about racism, where you have the half black and half white uh, people, and then and and, and I was like, this, this these aliens. Hate these other aliens, and they go, well, "Would you both half white and half black?" Well, no, I'm half black on the left side and half white on the right side, yeah. and these people from this other uh, planet are the opposite. Yeah, and then they go, "Well, now it just seems foolish yeah. right, that that people would would have this problem with each other." And and so, what a great way yeah. to I mean, it seems a little bit obvious back then, a little oversimplified, but you go, "Yeah, it makes you go." What the heck are yeah. we doing? 
Yeah. yeah. I love those. I love things. That's like a big, that. big for a space western, you know. It is. And it yet, is like, and yet, I mean, there's that famous story that Nichelle Nichols tells about how she wanted to quit after the first I love, season. I love that story. She wanted to quit Star Luther Trek. King she was, yeah, said, yeah, and Martin you Luther and will not quit. You're yeah. the only black woman on television. Yeah, yeah, that what we see on screen is important. You know, yeah. and and that yeah. it it will impact people. Will and Grace, yeah. same thing. Yeah. Uh, talking about you know, normalizing. It's all about normalizing, right? Yeah, you're not hurting anybody. Yeah, yeah. sci-fi is a wonderful place too, where you can see, like, if for especially for me, woman of color or a woman of of uh, mixed race background, it's it's in sci-fi where you, I I've seen more the most people who look like me, mm-hmm. not in not in other in other genres, you know, because I guess like I I. I fit with what some people's idea of the future is. I might not be able to, they right. can't figure out where I fit, you know, and this well, is... Gene Rod. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Gene Roddenberry didn't say to uh, NBC, well, we're going to put Michelle Nichols on as a series regular. Yeah. He just put her in. Yeah. And then she was just there the whole time. So the, he just, he just kind of snuck that in. And, it, and it, it, obviously it should have been yeah. Like you read that too in, the, in in her book, right? Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, oh my. So we just take the the United Colors of Benetton as a as a given yeah. on, on on the Star Trek bridge, but it, at that time it was very forward thinking. Yeah. And we we have to keep pushing. Yeah. We have to do that. We have to say it's very possible for people, women, and men of all different. Uh, backgrounds to to be able to work together yeah and so when somebody says i have a problem with those two people who love each other raising a child and even though they're of the same sex i go what how how could you possibly take issue with that yeah are you uncomfortable with it because you have to talk to your own kids about what's going on with them and like why why does that make you so uncomfortable yeah I'm sorry I interrupted you. What were you going to say? I don't remember. Oh, darn. It's all gone from well, people, my mind. You said people who look like me in science People fiction. who look like me. Yeah, sci-fi just seems to be a place where where a lot of these ideas can be, you know, explored and hashed out in a way that is almost like non-threatening to people. Um, like I like even a talk around gender and stuff. You had like genderless people represented on Star Trek: The Next Generation and yes, stuff like that. Yes. It's just it's so cool, you know. Way um, before I <laughs> even knew what that was. Yeah, right. Non-binary and uh, and stuff. But okay, I want to talk something kind of superficial, uh, or maybe not as deep as what we're talking about. But I want to talk about the process of of. Okay, so if if you're listening to this and you don't know who Dagwood is on Sequest and what what he looks like, just Google now and then you will see Peter. Uh, smooth. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, with pretty intense, uh, intense makeup application. Can you tell me about the process that was required for you to transform into into Dagwood? Sure, sure. So uh, my the character that I played was Dagwood. He was the prototype, meaning that he was the first one that they that they created uh, a genetically engineered life form, a G E L F, mm-hmm. a GELF, uh, genetically engineered. Uh, life uh, form and uh, the the idea was that if you genetically engineered these uh, people or and I'm not calling pe- people but these life forms uh, you would then have 
rule over their lives, mm. right? So if you, you, if you create them in a lab and, you, and, and they have them be uh, combat soldiers for you, you don't owe them anything. Mm. You don't owe them a, a life outside of combat, and, and their civil rights can be taken away. And See that sci-fi doing the work well, yeah, again? Yeah, you know? so it's pretty cool. And my character was, uh, because he was the first, he was quite simple, simple-minded. And so I, I, I used a lot of uh, what I knew about Lenny from Of Mice and Men mm-hmm. as, a, as a motivator for that. Oh. And, the, and the, the mottled skin, the camouflage of his skin yeah. was because all the different uh, mel- melanin of the, of the various races of the, that were available in the world were combined. Right, yeah. so you had the Asian skin and the and the black skin and the East Indian skin and the and the Mexican skin and the uh, Hispanic skin yeah. and I had all these different uh, uh, colors were mixed in to make a, a modeled look to to give him a, a camouflage look and that was by design. Right? Yeah, and then he had superhuman strength, and but he had the uh, he had the mind of a child. Yeah. or or I, what I like to say is I was in touch with my inner child all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wasn't very socially um, yeah. aware, and that that made it a fertile territory for one being incredibly sincere, and two, um, a fertile territory for for comedy, where I I just took, I, I everybody else takes a particular twist of a phrase for granted, and I don't I don't know what the heck they're talking about. Yeah, that so, was I loved that. That was probably the high point of my performing career because that was such an exotic character for yeah. me. I really enjoyed. That. But how long did it take to get to get ready then? Like I'm assuming you have to show up before almost everybody else on the cast. Yes. It just needs to have their it, hair it took, and makeup done. It took done. a very long time. Yeah. yeah. So 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 uh, as a director, we usually give um, even the most um, high maintenance of our our actors, and only end up perhaps needing an hour, hour and a half. Of of getting ready time hair and makeup yeah and um, well, I was given uh, something closer to two or three two and a half hours it took an, an entire hour just to put the color on wow. on my and that was minimum right so I would have to come with my head shaved already and then they would uh, put a combination of packs so there was this uh, glue so there's a, a medical adhesive. Uh, called with that that uh, that um, is used. I'm hor- Do you see? I'm making a horrified face because you said glue, and I'm like, what? And then you said well, medical that, adhesive, and well, I'm like, so what? a medical <laughs> adhesive is something like you would use to to uh, to attach a colostomy bag yeah. to, to your abdomen. Okay, so but they would mix that with this colored paint, and that's how it would stick to my skin, right? <gasps> and they would put it in an airbrush and then spray it on me, all these various colors, right? And then, but the pattern had to be the exact, exact same every yeah. time. And so it, it looks like it's quite random, but it, it couldn't change from day to day. So it had to be very specific. Wow, that's exhausting. It was, it yeah. was exhausting, but <laughs> it was thrilling too to yeah. be able to play something like that. Yeah, and I guess the process then, like did you find that getting that done every day that you were able to use that time to, to get into Dagwood's brain? Well, I'd like to be able to say yes, but because it was such a long time, I ended up doing uh, brain teasers and listening to uh, uh, books on tape and, and uh, trying to expand my horizons uh, in, in various ways. So I didn't just just sit there and think, what is it like to be a, a, a newborn child with the ability to, to speak? This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. 
These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. Hi, I'm Mariana Fermenter. This was the end of part one. You can find part two in your podcast feed or at www.yvrscreenscene.com.